Hey, it's Dr. Judy. Since 1971, Pepperdine Graduate School of Education and Psychology has had one mission, to strengthen professionals for lives of purpose, service, and leadership. And it just happens to be where I work. Online psychology at Pepperdine is the latest evolution of our mission, with online master's programs designed for people who want to align their work to their life's true calling. Pepperdine offers three online programs that feature course topics like trauma in diverse populations, multicultural counseling, social psychology, and so much more. The online master's programs are led by renowned faculty in the field who are passionate about their life's work and their students. Students will learn from faculty like myself who see sharing knowledge and mentoring students as more than work, but a noble pursuit and responsibility. Through an intuitive digital campus, students are connected to everything and everyone that they need access to, wherever they are, on any device. At Pepperdine, purpose is not just something that we preach. It's something we embody. We are a community of more than 130,000 professionals making waves and enriching lives. So what are you waiting for? Pursue your purpose at Online Psychology at Pepperdine. Visit PepperdinePurpose.com slash Supercharged Life to learn more. That's P-E-P-P-E-R-D-I-N-E Purpose.com slash Supercharged Life to learn more. See you there. Hi, I'm Dr. Judy, and welcome to Supercharged Life, where I help you discover new ways to create success, wellness, and fulfillment, and give you tangible tools to supercharge your life. Today's supercharged tip is something that we all need to learn about, especially right now, and that is reinvention. Reinvention is one of the most important skills you need to have in today's ever-changing world. If you're going through a major shift in your life, you need to find new ways of thinking and doing things to get out of your comfort zone in order to reach your full potential. Reinvention requires a leap of faith and a strong belief in yourself so that you can handle whatever new challenges that come your way. And we are going to talk about how you can do that with my phenomenal guest today, who has a unique story that he is sharing in order to help others reinvent themselves to live their best lives. So you might recognize him from Dancing with the Stars or the Emmy award-winning daytime soap opera, All My Children. But J.R. Martinez is so much more than an actor or a TV personality. He's also a former U.S. Army soldier, a motivational speaker, a podcast host, and a devoted father and husband. In 2003, when JR was just 19 years old, he was shipped off to Iraq for his first tour of duty in the Army. His Humvee hit a landmine three weeks in, and he sustained life-altering burns to over 34% of his body and had 33 plastic surgeries, spending much of the next two years in hospitals. But JR turned his tragedy into triumph and began to share his story with people around the world about rebirth after trauma and how everyone can learn to adapt and transform themselves for the better. So let's welcome JR Martinez. Yay! Hey, thank you for that introduction. Oh my goodness. I am so pumped to talk to you. <laughs> so I talked to my producer before this, and I mean, she was so excited to have talked to you also in preparation for this. And I just know you have so many stories and so many wonderful tips for our listeners, but let's start with your childhood. You know, I think, especially right now, I mean, we're still in the middle of trying to get our grip on this pandemic. And I think people are just really starting to contend more with like self-reflection and thinking about who they are, what their lives are like, self-concept, self-esteem. I mean, so many things are coming up for so many people. And in many ways, we reflect back on our childhood because that's where it all started. And sometimes not through any fault of our own, we've had childhoods that weren't so ideal. I mean, who has the perfect childhood anyway? But I know that you've had to overcome a lot of adversity in your own childhood. Can we start with talking a little bit about that? 
Yeah, for sure. I was born in Shreveport, Louisiana. My mother immigrated to this country from Central America, a small country called El Salvador. My father, she met my father here, got pregnant, had me. My father, when I was nine months old, left and uh, didn't meet him until I was 36 years old. Wow. Which was last year. <laughs> and when I know we could probably, we'll go into that maybe later, but you know, I lived in Louisiana for the first nine years of my life. And at the age of nine, my mother said, we're going to relocate. We're going to move to a town in Arkansas called Hope. And this is not something I really wanted to do. Um, I was not excited about this move at all. And it was because I was leaving my comfort zone. Despite the challenges that I experienced in Louisiana, meaning my mother fell into relationships. And unfortunately, those relationships were very abusive. I witnessed that as a young boy. I would be four, five, six years old and have to witness him hitting her, meaning my mother's boyfriend at the time. And I would have to call the police and I would have to hide in the closet. And one instance, I remember reaching for him and asking him, don't hit her. And he was the closest image of a father that I had. So I called him dad and I went to grab his arm and he was getting ready to hit her. And I said, stop, stop, don't hit mom. And he turned around and he hit me and he mm. put her and I in the, in the backseat of the car and he drove her, drove us around for God knows how long, but it was, you know, at least an hour. And he kept saying he was going to kill us. And unfortunately, this is a lot of what my childhood was in the early, in the early years of my life. So although there were those challenges in Louisiana and those memories that existed, it was still my comfort zone. It was still a place that I called home and identified, this is where home is, this is where school is, this is where friends are. And being forced out of that box, despite how challenging that box may have been, was tough for me at the age of nine. And I moved to Arkansas. I was one of the first Hispanic kids to arrive. Uh, I was it was predominantly white and black kids. Both of them would, you know, haze me, tease me about being Hispanic, would constantly mock speaking Spanish. And I didn't feel like I found a community and a group for me. And uh, I grew up that way. Uh, my mother got a job. She worked the graveyard shift. She would leave, you know, the house around 10 o'clock at night. And she wouldn't come back till around 8.30 in the morning. And I was nine years old and I had to get myself up in the morning, get myself breakfast, get myself dressed, get to school. I would get home by myself. Um, I put myself to bed. There was a lot of independence. And I can tell you that for, so fast forward after my junior year of high school, I orchestrated us to leave Arkansas. I wanted to move. Um, there was just a lot of violence, unfortunately, you know, that I was exposed to in Arkansas. I mean, I was jumped by gang members um, where they were trying to recruit me and I didn't want to be a part of it. So they would jump me, of course, because they don't like rejection. Then there would be other groups that found me rolling solo. So they'd be like, oh, he's an easy target because I didn't have cousins or uncles or siblings. It was just me. And so I was an easy target. And I just remember feeling like I needed to get out of this place. I felt like there were not as many opportunities for me. And it wasn't until uh, my mother at the end of my junior year come up to me, came up to me and said, I have a friend that lives in a small town in Georgia. Why don't we go vacation for a few days? And I jumped at the opportunity. So we go, we hang out for about three days in this small town in Georgia called Dalton. And on the drive back to Arkansas, 
my mother asked me, what did you think about it? And of course, it was great. I loved it. So I asked her, what did you think about it? And she says, I loved it too. It reminds me a lot of where I grew up in El Salvador. So I asked her, can we move? And she said, no, you're getting going into your senior year of high school. I have a great job. No. Mm. So I get home. Well, we get home. And a few hours later, my mom wakes up from a nap and she walks into the living room and she sees me taking a picture frame off of the wall. And she says, what are you doing? And I said, I'm packing. And she says, what do you mean you're packing? Where are you going? I said, we're moving to Georgia. She says, no, we're not. We already talked about this. Mm. And I said to her, while you were sleeping, I figured it all out. So in my, in my mind, it was like, you're over here wasting time, resting. Life goes on. I'm, I'm going to figure out a plan for myself. And all I could think of, Dr. Judy, was I have nothing going on in the summertime. Why don't I go to Dalton, try to get a job, and see what happens in a month? If I don't get a job or if I'm doing, not doing well in one month, I'll come back to Arkansas and graduate from high school here. That was it. And she agreed to those terms. I got on a Greyhound bus and I got to Dalton, Georgia. The next day I got hired. Fast forward a month later, I saved enough money to secure an apartment. So the deal was she would have to relocate if I was doing well in a month. And she did. And when I left Hope, Arkansas, I was just shy of 18 years old. For the last 18 years of my life, I've had nothing but a negative association with that place. Mm because of my memories. And I went back for the first time and I was only there for maybe a day. And I drove around all the houses that we lived in, the school that I went to. And you know what was really fascinating about going down memory lane is all of these places, I lived in around six homes in those nine years in Hope, Arkansas. And as a parent, you wanna give your child consistency. You want to be able to give them a secure, solid home, one space, not moving around. There's a lot of arguments and data that shows that that's not healthy for a child. But I look back at that period in my life and I'm like, you know what? It was preparing me for the life that I live today. Mm. And in the last 17 years, I've was in Texas. I've moved to Georgia. I moved to New York. I moved to LA. I moved back to New York. And now I'm in Austin, Texas. And, and me, I'm so easy to go. Where's the opportunity? Someone says, hey, an opportunity is here. We need you to be here. I'm there. Versus my wife, who had the luxury of being born and raised in, in a small community and within probably five blocks, the all houses she's lived in within five blocks of each other. And it's a beautiful thing. But when opportunities present themselves for her to jump and to take advantage of them, she's a little bit more hesitant and reluctant to do that because of our childhood. So as much as I can say that there are a lot of challenges, looking back with a different perspective, a different lens, those challenges I faced as a, in my childhood prepared me to be the person that I am today, good and bad. Wow, JR, there's so much to unpack right there, like mind blown already <laughs> because you really much just took me through like the entire narrative of your childhood and really not only talking about the adversities of what you were presented with. I mean, being the parentified child at the young age of four or five, I mean, how scary is that? And, and enduring some of the abuse of your mother's partners yourself, but then ultimately coming around full circle. And like you said, you know, 18 years later, 
revisiting that town that was full of so many, in many ways, traumatic memories. Um, and being able to say, but you know what? All of those experiences really helped me to get to where I am today, to do the things that I'm going to be doing and to be able to motivate other people who might have been through adversity and trauma and say, you don't have to sit down and take it. You can still make these into brilliant opportunities for yourself. And I think that's so hard because it doesn't sound like when you grew up, you had the role models or the template to do this. I know that your mom had to leave a couple of her other children, her two daughters back in El Salvador, and they were raised sort of by the community or other extended family members. And it was just you and her much of the time. And whenever she would have these guys coming in and out of the home, it was actually very disruptive to you to the point where you had to kind of figure out your own way. Like you said, you called it independence, but as children, we're not supposed to be doing that as children. Right. We're supposed to be able to rely on our parents for that stability and that secure base. And in general, that's how people feel like they can go out of the box and go for opportunities the way that you have, you know, because they say, well, I can always get back to my parents who will hug me and tell me everything's okay if I slip and fall. But you didn't have that. So my, my question to you is, and there's so many, but my first main question to you is, how did you learn to do those things that in general, people really have to have a secure base and, and role models who have done it and paved the path to do that. Like, How did you get there? Um, I've learned from a lot of people over the course of the last 17 years. I was 19 when I was injured. And as I started to meet more people, due, because being a veteran and being involved in nonprofit work, I found myself exposed to, let's just, let's just focus on men. For this particular instance, right? Like I focused on men that I wanted to emulate who they, how they were, who they were as husbands, as boyfriends, as fathers. And I started to witness this behavior and say, I want that. I want to be that. How can I become that? I also remembered the feelings of my childhood that I did not like. And so I'd never wanted to continue to carry that into whatever new chapter of my life and a relationship. And, you know, and of course, being a parent um, to a to a young eight year old. But I, I have to give much of the credit to my best friend, who is 17 years older than I am. He was in the Air Force for 20 years. We didn't serve together. We met each other after I was injured because I got to tell you. It's easy when you look at me and seeing, as you said in that introduction, so beautifully, like I was, you know, I was burned, you know, over 34% of my body, most of it being my face and my head, you know, the visible, visible part of it. I can tell people that, yes, that was challenging, the physical recovery, but was what was more challenging and was a longer recovery process was the mental and emotional recovery. So I wasn't secluded just because I had a physical injury from not having to go through that. Mm. No, I equally had to go through that. And I can tell you that I spent three years in a hospital recovering. I got out when I was 22 years old. I got out into the world and I just assumed that everybody was going to give me opportunities and everybody understood what I brought to the table. Mm -hmm. Nobody saw it. People actually put me in a box and said, you're a veteran. You're better off speaking to veterans. And that was suffocating. Wow. To say the least. And so I started to lash out. I started to now all of those emotional and mental wounds that existed prior to my injury mm. or my childhood 
that I never paid attention to because, of course, it's not something we talk about. Right. Oh, no. And now my injury was the trigger to all of these, you know, deep rooted, you know, experiences that were negative. So now they were starting to surface. So what do I mean by that? Here I am, 22, 23, 24 years old. I'm navigating through the world, trying to figure out my life. I'm angry. Mm. I'm upset. I'm drinking. Mm. I could tell you, and I'll be completely honest because I believe as a speaker, as a person, if you really want to impact people, you have to be willing to be open and vulnerable. And I am at the place now where I'm confident and comfortable with being vulnerable because I, the more that I've done it, I have found people that are complete strangers to me that have embraced that, that have said, we'll hug you. We won't judge you. And then I'll be able to share my experiences with you. So I'm going to be vulnerable. Here I was, 22, 23, 24 years old. I would go out with friends. Something would trigger me. And it could be literally, and I'll give you an example. And this is what I had to realize about myself. As I would go and let's say, talk to a girl, a beautiful girl. And I would, you know, I'm still young. I'm, at the end of the day, yes, my body's changed, but mentally and emotionally, I still want to talk to a girl. You're ready to get it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so, you know, it's like when I was injured, I remember being in ICU and this was after I came, on, came out of my medical induced coma. And uh, I looked at my, you know, my body as much as I could. And then I looked down and I can see the way I was laying down. I can only, I can see my stomach that was a little, in, it, it was like, it was a little inflamed because they had to cut my stomach open. And I can see these sutures from the top of my stomach, like kind of going over this little hill, which was my stomach. And then I couldn't see, I couldn't see my, my legs, my feet or anything else. And my mind went to this place. I was like, how far down do these staples go? And I remember when the nurse came in, I said, hey, let, just square away with me, man. Am I okay down there? And he was like, what do you mean? And I was like, am I okay? And he was like, no, you're fine. I was like, oh, thank God. <laughs> I could deal with anything else. That I don't know. But, you know, here I am now, you know, at this, at this age. And, you know, I, a girl would... You know, it's very uncomfortable for a lot of people. To, they don't know necessarily what to say, how to say it. How, do we address the elephant in the room or do we just focus on the individual and what they're saying and what they're doing? Let's just focus on that. And there would be a girl that, for example, would say, you know, that would just be short with me. I would, let's say, buy her a drink. Mm -hmm. But if she didn't say thank you, that bothered me. If she, at, the, at the end of the night, she didn't say, hey, let's hang out sometime or let me follow up with you. That triggered me. Yep. And what I would do now, I would become aggressive and angry. There was times, and I'm not proud of saying this, that at 22, 23, 24, I'd go out with friends, I'd drink, and I'd still drive, and I would just be reckless. When I tell people I'm lucky to be here today, yes, I'm referring to surviving what happened to me in Iraq, but I'm lucky to be here today because of the situations I put myself in, and I didn't hurt myself and of course, more importantly, hurt anybody else while I was engaging in that reckless behavior. But I was broken and I didn't have anybody that I can sort of hang on to. That was my anchor right. until my best friend. One day, I'm 24 years old. We're in Indianapolis, Indiana for a fundraiser. And I lash out at some people mm. for no reason, just because I needed to now get this energy out. Yep. And he said to me, you need to, JR, chill out. And he's, that's all he said to me. <laughs> and that was enough. 
And now I wanted to fight him. Well, let me tell you something. So paint a visual for the listener right now. I'm 5'9", 200 pounds. He's six foot four. And at that time, he's like 285. Me trying to fight this guy, if he would have actually said, let's do it, would not have ended well. Right. But that tells you how blind I was about everything. But instead of engaging in that, he sat me in the passenger seat of his car and he told me to cry. Mm. And I said, what do you mean cry? And he said, you need to cry. You got all this stuff inside of you. You need to let it out. And he just kept telling me this. And before you know it, I started crying. Mm. Let me tell you how powerful that moment was. Prior to that conversation, every time we ended a phone conversation or, you know, we were leaving each other, you know, he would always say, I love you. Mm. I would always respond with, all right, I'll talk to you later. I wasn't ready. You are. Because my my whole childhood, as you know, I never had a man in my life that I would say I love you to. And the one man that I did say that to was hitting my mother and then hit me at one point. So I'm not going to tell any man that because I got to protect myself. That's not what I was taught. That's, I didn't have that example. After he, he and I had that conversation that night, the next day when we're at the airport and we had to go to different gates, he said, I love you. I said, I love you too, man. Because he created a safe space for me. He allowed me to know that it was okay as a young man, as a Hispanic mm-hmm. young man, as somebody who was in the military, that I could cry in the right space, in the right environment. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you that that started this whole journey that I can honestly say started my healing process from 2007. That's when my healing journey began. Because now I was really understanding the root of a lot of my pain. Mm -hmm. It wasn't about that girl. It was the idea of I I hadn't accepted myself. I wasn't confident in myself. There was a lot of uh, acceptance was an issue. And I didn't learn all these things until I went to therapy. Mm -hmm. And I went to therapy when I was broken. And I've gone to therapy when I wasn't necessarily broken. Mm-hmm. And I'm telling you now that I'm 37 years old. I got to think about that for a second, but I'm 37 years old and I'm in a great place in my life. Mm-hmm. But I know that there are some things that I got to work through. It may be time for me to start revisiting that conversation of going to therapy again, because I can't figure all this out by myself. Absolutely. Uh, you know what, JR, when you were telling me that story and when you talked about the moment of clarity in the beginning of your healing process, I got chills. Because when you're recollecting what happened to you in your childhood and how that actually played out in your early 20s, it makes so much sense that, first of all, anger is a primitive emotion. It is a protective fight or flight emotion. It gets you to that place where you're charged up and it's all about your survival. And people don't realize that survival is not just about physical. I'm glad you brought that up because survival is also emotional, psychological, and social. If those parts of your being can't survive, you're going to perish. And we've seen that in studies now, you know, people in social isolation for extended periods of time, they actually have more chronic illnesses. They actually do die earlier than you would expect. And there's nobody who would ever argue now that there is a mind body connection there, but you were still trying to figure it out. You didn't have those coping skills and you didn't have the words. And it also makes sense why you were so impulsive, you know, driving recklessly, drinking yourself basically in many ways, in a way that didn't take care of yourself. Well, there wasn't any self-love. There wasn't any self-respect. It's like, 
I don't deserve any better. And maybe that wasn't a conscious thing that you processed, but it was certainly how it played out. Mm-hmm. And it also makes sense that you wouldn't tell anybody that you love them because again, without that secure base, the fear of abandonment and rejection is so strong with the childhood that you described. And maybe for the people who are listening, they're like, whoa, some of this sounds like some of my childhood. And I've had a hard time bonding with people, whether it's friends or romantic partners. I mean, yeah, because the entire time your fight or flight is going and you're thinking, if I do this, I might be destroyed. So I can't ever let on that I even care about this person or that I could, you know, tell him anything about myself that might actually expose me for all the problems and flaws and whatever else you perceived at that time. But the moment that you finally said, I love you too. I really want to hear like what that felt like for you, because it sounds like it was a while before you were able to say that to anybody Mm -hmm. and really mean it. And, and you know, how, how was, how was that moment? and, And how did you extend that? to now know that there are also other people who might be safe bases from which you could operate from. For example, you're married. You know, there's other people that you formed positive bonds with. Right. How were you able to kind of take that and generalize that lesson to other people in the world and how you feel about yourself? Well, I think you're a doctor, so you'll be able to to articulate this better than me, right? But I feel like what we have a tendency to do as human beings is that when we have an experience with one particular group, we have a tendency to paint the brush of everything or anybody that looks even somewhat remotely close to that individual or that experience. Yeah. And so we start now to project out to everybody else. And for me, when I had that experience to answer your first question, where I said to Dan, I love you too, man. Mm-hmm. Like I remember <laughs> as corny as it sounds like, but it was almost like that, 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 you know, that uh, rom-com movie, you know, comedy, you know, what is it? Comedy, romantic, whatever it's called. Like, but, but it's like that, that element of where, like you say, like you finally see the actor or the actress say like, I love you too. And it's just like this moment and you can see that they're radiating and they're glowing and there's beautiful music. And that's in, in like an affectionate, intimate relationship. But I had the same feeling towards a guy Mm -hmm. that was my, friend. Mm -hmm. And I felt the same thing because all of us want to feel love. Yeah. All of us want to feel unconditional love because there's a difference between love and unconditional love. And what I had to learn is that I was, what I was seeking in my life was unconditional love. So when I said that to him, and then when I continued to say that to him, because I did, because we continued to expand on that conversation. I just grew a deeper love and understanding that this man loves me unconditional, mm-hmm. unconditionally. There are, there is no stipulations, no guidelines. He loves me no matter what I say, no matter what I do, he is there for me. And because he's older, he's 17 years older than me. He's almost in many ways, like a father figure. Mm-hmm. He's a mentor. He's an older brother to our daughter. He, she calls him uncle Dan, but he's also like a grandfather to her. So he fills the void of what I have been seeking my whole life. And what I was able to learn through him is that, yes, I've had some people that I've encountered in the last 17 years of my life since my injury that did take advantage of my feelings and my emotions and my willingness to give. But there are a lot more people that aren't like that. Yeah. And 
I had to trust myself first that in order to be vulnerable, that's how I was going to find the real people. If I wasn't going to allow myself to be vulnerable, I would never truly learn about people's true meaning and desires and intentions. Mm -hmm. So I had to learn how to be vulnerable. I had to learn how to be honest. And I had to learn that if somebody doesn't like what I'm sharing with them, that is dark about me and they leave, you know what? That's actually a good thing. Mm. It may not feel that way in that moment, but I'll learn about how beneficial that was for me later down the road because they're not equipped. Yeah. They're not ready. And I, I can tell you, you know, something that I learned through therapy that I, you know, you have a tendency, the mind to protect itself. It blocks out a lot of, you know, memories. And I remembered that when I was 16 years old, I was sitting in my room. We still lived in Hope, Arkansas. My mom came in the room and she found me sitting on the edge of the bed crying. And she says, what's wrong? Why are you crying? And I said to her, sometimes I think of getting into a car accident hmm. because I want to know how many people would actually show up to the hospital. I want to know how many people actually care. Hmm. Now, if you, if you and I, if you were taking callers and we heard a 16 year old child tell us that hmm. you and I, we immediately say, okay, you're having these thoughts. We need to jump in. We need to address this. Right. That wasn't addressed. It was my mother's tools. All she had was love me. But what I, what I realized later that I was seeking and what I've always wanted is I've always wanted family. I've always wanted community. I always wanted to feel like I was a part of something. And I felt incredibly isolated. Mm. And part of that, unfortunately, which is really hard because in the Hispanic culture, your parents, but especially your mother, they are idolized. They are elevated. They are worshipped. They are everything. And I can tell you that in my late 20s, I started to learn that there were components of my relationship with my mother that were not healthy. Mm -hmm. And I had to learn how to do something that I never thought I would ever have to do. And that's put up boundaries with my own mother, the woman that brought me into this world, the woman that sacrificed so much for me, the woman that took care of me, gave me everything, not only that I needed, but I wanted, but I had to learn that the way that she was loving me because of her own fear, her own abandonment that she's experienced was not healthy for me. Mm -hmm. And I had to say, I got to break this cycle. Yeah. And I have to establish those boundaries because I don't want to bring that into my current relationships. And I'll tell you a big defining moment that made me realize I was identifying it was when, and I'll be honest. So my wife and I, we've been, 10 years, 10 years together, but we had some rocky phases in our relationship. A lot was thrown at us in the early stages of our relationship. And there was a period where we weren't together and then we were back together and we tried. And, and I could tell you that there was, when our daughter was born, my daughter was with me one weekend and she was only going to be with me for about three or four days. And she's at my apartment and she starts to cry one night. She says, I miss mommy. Mm. I want to be with mommy. I respond with, 
why don't you love daddy? Don't you love being with daddy? And she's like, I do love you, daddy. I do love being with you. And I was like, well, it doesn't sound like you love me. No, you know, you don't love daddy the same way. And Mm. she started crying. And then I just gave her, I remember giving her a hug and then because it was nighttime. So I put her to bed. As soon as she went to bed, I called Dan, Dan, the man. I called Dan and I said, I'm doing it. Mm -hmm. I'm guilting my daughter because of my own insecurities, because of my own fears. And that's unfortunately at times what my mother did with me. Mm-hmm. And I, so I'm able to identify because now I have the tools and the resources and I understand what to pay attention to, to say, no longer will I conduct this behavior. So I stopped in that moment. I was able to identify what I would do with my daughter and break it and say, I'm not going to engage in that behavior again. Cause I don't want her or anybody else to feel what I felt. And I think that's such a powerful moment. And I think that sometimes these come up in the most extraordinary of times. I think being a parent is an extraordinary experience and you start to learn, whoa, I'm seeing myself reflected back in my child. Right. And you were putting her through maybe some of the emotional stress and burden that your mom inadvertently put you through because she was only trying to do her best, but she also had her own traumas as you very eloquently stated. And I think That is the problem with trauma, right? There's that intergenerational trauma that can persist if you don't get in there and say, that's it. You know, I'm going to have to figure this out. This is my chance to start a new cycle, a positive cycle and create a better future for my daughter and all of the people to come after that. And I think that that's why it is so important sometimes that we do have these conversations, that we do talk about the benefits of going to therapy, that we talk about the benefits of expressing your emotions, but also understanding that there's still so much stigma about not only getting mental health care. I mean, forget that. It's just talking about feelings, like you said, especially in certain cultures, Latino culture, Hispanic culture, that machismo cultural value. I'm Chinese and there is a cultural value that is also very much um, idolized in our culture. And that is stoicism. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. Um, And I, I adore my parents, but They definitely, again, growing up in traditional Chinese culture, I remember when I was a kid, you know, have a disappointment at school, get bullied, whatever, come home, tell my parents, I'm sad, you know, cry. And basically their solution is, don't be sad. It's like, okay, like, what am I supposed to do with that? And again, I know that they were only doing their best and they weren't taught to do it any different, but it is kind of interesting that that doesn't get validated as a child, right? Like don't have negative emotions, the bad thing, you know? Yeah. Well, if I, if I, I think about it and I've put a lot of thought into this. And when I think about like my mother or like your parents, for example, or a lot of people that will say the same thing, you know, like how often do you see parents when their children are upset? They say, why are you crying? Why are you crying? Like stop crying. And it's like, well, if, I can stop, but then what's the alternative to deal with this feeling? Cause the feeling is still there. And I think about it and I say, well, that's what, you know, our parents, our grandparents, our great grandparents, everybody before us, that's what they had to do. Yeah. Because you couldn't afford, especially, especially let's just throw this in there. If you immigrated to the United States of America seeking opportunity, you can't afford to sit here and say, hey, I don't actually feel well. I need to, you know, can I take a day? Can I take half a day to go deal with this? You know, feel no, you had to, as you said, you had to survive. And so you had to suppress the feeling mm-hmm. and then just do the best that you could because you had to take advantage of the incredible opportunity you had by being in this country 
And not everybody has that luxury. And so I, I get it. And so for me, it's like, okay, I'm a citizen. I was born in this country. I was raised in this country. I almost died for my country. It is, I have all the tools and resources available to me to then say, now I'm going to break it. Now I'm going to say with my name, whoever carries my name, whoever carries part of my blood, it ends here. Yeah. This, this, this is it because I know the feeling and it's not enough to sit here and just tell my daughter, don't cry. It's now I tell her when she tells me, cause she's been bullied and I say, it's okay. Listen, you have to understand why that person is maybe doing what they're doing. And yeah. these are, this is how you combat that, but you have to allow them to feel. And that is something that I'm still learning how to do because I think as a father to a girl, mm. I know how tough it is for women. Oh, like I get it. Right. Like I'm not, I'll, I, I get, I get it. And so for me, I am trying to make her tough mm -hmm. because I know that what I'm going to say to her or the tone that I speak to her is nowhere near the way the world is going to speak to her when she gets out there. So there are moments when I'm like, hey, cut it out, like stop it. But then I'm like, remind myself, oh, and my, my wife reminds me, mm. let her feel, let her, you know, and I was like, okay, let you process. Okay, now let's talk about. How do we combat that? Yes. And I think that it's great that you're just giving her these practical steps. Like it's okay to have these feelings, but it's also okay to do something about it, right? You don't have to just sit with those feelings and forever just, you know, kind of be <laughs> this negative space. It's okay mm -hmm. to acknowledge the negative space, acknowledge where it comes from, and then actually take action. And this is something that you've done very well in your life. And as you've already explained to me, it was through your own healing journey and process that now you're saying, okay, I'm in the place where not, not only can I help my family members and people close to me, but I can actually talk to people who have been through all kinds of adversities and help to motivate them as well. And I want to bring up this concept, the supercharged tip and theme of the day, which is this idea of reinvention, because you have been reinvented and reborn many, many times in your life, yes. whether it was a childhood challenge to the adversities of the incredible experience you went through, you know, being burned and then having those 33 plus surgeries to get at least physically well, then to the reinvention of getting emotionally and psychologically well. And, and also I appreciate you acknowledging that it's a process because sometimes you think, okay, I'm done. No, we're never done self-developing. And if you finish one bout in therapy, but then something else comes up, okay, maybe you go to therapy again, or maybe you got to have another deep conversation with Dan, the man, whatever exactly. it's are, you got to use them. But this idea of reinvention, I think sometimes people feel locked up like, well, this is what I've been born with. Like, this is the lot I have in life. And I think there's no time better than, than this time right now to talk about it because right now with the pandemic still surging, I think people feel very out of control. Like, what can I really do? They feel like they're victims in their own lives, whether it's previous trauma or current trauma or both. So, you know, I've always found it really important that, you know, part of that reinvention process is really sitting and thinking about, well, what is it that I wanted to always do, but, but never, never really actually took the steps towards like what's holding me back. But then, you know, we judge ourselves so quickly in our heads. It's like, you shut it away. No, nobody wants to listen to me speak. Nobody wants me to be a motivational speaker. So tell me a little bit about how you started to take that journey, you know, becoming a motivational speaker. And did you have that judgment and how did you get past it? Ooh, all right. Let's, let's dive into that. That's a great question. Um, 
Yeah, you know, so here I was 19 years old and being in the hospital and as as I'm sure you've heard uh, personally and, and, and on, you know, different uh, pieces that are done on veterans, two questions that veterans who are injured are now being treated will always ask, how are the people that I was with and then when can I go back? And I was no different. Those are the two questions that I asked immediately when my doctor came into my room and talked to me after I was pulled out of my coma. And then the answer that came after that was, uh, we don't know how the guys are doing. And as far as you going back, you're never going to be able to remain. You're never going to be able to serve in the uniform again. You're going to be medically discharged. At 19 years old, let me tell you how challenging that was, because I immediately not only lost my identity, physical identity that I'd known for 19 years of my life, but I imme immediately lost the identity that I was starting to create for myself, which is being a young man in uniform, being of service. That was my purpose. So when I fell into a deep, dark hole, I fell into a deep, dark hole. And I sort of just one day rewired my mind because I didn't know the long-term outcome of what was going to transpire of my life. All I could do was literally focus on the short-term. Mm. And the short-term consisted of wake up every morning, try to have a good attitude, try to be positive, try to believe, try to have faith. That was all it consisted of incredibly basic, right? Like you hear a lot of people that I'll do exercises about being grateful. And when you wake up in the morning, what are you grateful for? List those things, start with one thing and then evolve into five and 10. And eventually you're surprised as shitty as some of our worlds, we may perceive it to be. There's a lot of things that we, should, we, we can be grateful for. And so I, that's essentially the work that I did. Six months later, I'm asked to visit a patient who is having a difficult time in the hospital. I didn't want to go and talk to him. I'm not a therapist. I'm not licensed. I, what am I going to say? I might mess it up. They insisted. And this is a, uh, a nurse asking me to do this. I finally said, fine, I'll do it. And it was more just so she would leave me alone. Mm -hmm. I walked into his room in the middle of the day. The lights were off. The curtain was closed. It was completely dark in the room. And I just thought to myself, man, this isn't good. Mm. But I still walked up to his bed. I introduced myself. 45 minutes later, I said, hey, man, I'll come back tomorrow and check on you. He said, I'd appreciate that. And I turned around to exit the room. And before I could exit, I noticed, I turned around and noticed that the light above his bed was on and the curtain was halfway open. There was light in the room. Mm. And something so simple said so much to me that I'd given him hope. Mm -hmm. What I decided to do when I walked out of the room, I found the head doctor of the burn ward. And I said, is it possible for me to visit patients every day between my appointments? He, of course, was like, yes, yes, of course you can, because we cannot relate to the patient the way that you can. So what I did is I scheduled all of my appointments in the morning and left the e afternoon into the evening free for me to go and do my version of my rounds. Wow. What I found after two, three weeks of doing this, I found the things that I missed. Purpose. Mm. Service. Mm. Identity. I found those three things in a very different way, but I found them again. So I say that because I want to set up how I start getting involved with the nonprofit to help veterans. This is a year after I'm injured. I said, I just want to help. They said, okay, you know, you're articulate, you, you know, you're good in front of, you know, speaking to people. So we're going to have you as a spokesman. I had no idea what that meant. Mm -hmm. That was not something I grew up thinking I wanted to be a motivational speaker or a spokesman for a nonprofit. And yet I'm getting put into this position to speak and do interviews 
And people started calling the hospital saying that kid that we saw on the show, we wanted him to come and speak. And the first time they presented the opportunity to me, I said, I don't want to do it. And they say, why not? I said, because girls don't like motivational speakers. They're like actors and athletes. That was literally, I was 20 years old. That's literally what I said. Because again, if you think about that, I said that because I was still insecure about me. So I felt that I needed the flashy, you know, thing for someone to be attracted and want to be around me because I didn't feel confident. So they insisted, insisted, insisted. And I just, I went with it. All right, let me try. Let me see what happens. And the first engagement I did, people responded to it very well. People could say that they could relate to me, yet these people had never been in the military, never been injured, never spent this amount of time in the hospital, but they could relate to me. Mm-hmm. And that was incredibly fascinating for me. And so I've just, for me, all the new opportunities that have presented themselves, what, I wasn't qualified to be an actor. I never studied to be an actor. I got an email to audition and I said, I guess. And I got the part and it was supposed to be three months and it turned into three years of me being on the show because I was willing to grow and challenge myself and say, I'm going to show up. And so for me, there's a lot of things that I can't, I, I have no control of in my life. I've experienced a lot of moments in my life that have been out of my control, but for me, it's a matter of what focusing on what I can control. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, you know, for example, the pandemic, what is the one thing we all have in common? We all say we don't have enough time. We don't have enough time for this. We don't have time for that. We want to try something new, but time. Well, now most of us, unfortunately, have nothing but time. But fortunately, you have it. Life sometimes forces us to come to that halt. And it's an opportunity for us to then utilize that moment, that time to say, what are we going to do with it? And so for me, I fall into that category. I've wanted to ye- for years to do what you're doing right now, have a podcast, talk to some incredible, fascinating people that have overcome and defied the odds. I don't have time to do that. Mm-hmm. Well, the pandemic starts and I say, well, I'm not going to be traveling anymore. So what, it's time for me to do my own little podcast as well. And just try it and just see who cares if I fail, who cares if I only get 50 subscribers. I'm fulfilling something inside of me as much as we all want to have the money and the sponsors and the ads. And at the end of the day, I'm at a point in my life where I don't need all of that to feel fulfilled and successful and happy. And so I asked people the question, when this pandemic is over, when we are finally able to get back to a quote unquote life, are you going to be able to look back at this period that we were in this and be proud of how you took advantage of the time? Yeah. Are you going to be happy with yourself and say, man, I, I, I prepared for this. I tried this. I did a lot of self-reflection. This is the time. This is the moment. When I was in the hospital for three years, I didn't like being in a hospital. I didn't like being isolated to a hospital room that was 250 square feet. And I couldn't have any interaction for three months with anybody outside of my room. I didn't like that at all. But I knew that that was the moment that life was forcing me to stop and reset and figure it out. And I didn't figure it out right away, but I figured out the first few steps of it, which was those simple exercises of gratefulness. And that's really all you need. Sometimes people feel like they need to have a prescription for life before they even take a step forward. And sometimes it's just like, get up, make your bed, move your body, take a shower, get dressed. Exactly. You know, it's sometimes it's just that simple. And 
you are so relatable, JR. And you, I, I really related to all of the things that you just said. I mean, I think it's really about this idea of this pandemic being a time for many people of what they believe is contraction. But really, it's a time of expansion, mm-hmm. learning to see that opportunity for what it is. And as a self-professed workaholic, I, I know that a lot of my self-concept is tied up in what I do. Mm-hmm. I really do feel very passionate about it. I've done my own work. You know, I've, I've also gone to therapy. I think it's important as a mental health professional to go to therapy. But you would not believe the stigma that even yes. professionals have about d- that type of a thing. Yes. Just to be able to talk about the fact that we all should do it. You know, it's so silly. Right. <laughs> But I haven't done my own work and knowing how important my job is and also knowing that I actually truly am passionate about the things that I'm doing and loving those things, but also still knowing that maybe my life needs a bit of balance and the pandemic affording that opportunity of balance. Like you said, well, I'm not commuting three to four hours anymore in Los Angeles because that's how long my commutes were on a daily basis. That's how crazy it was. So now I have all this extra time where I'm not commuting and I'm working from home. And what will I do with that time? How do I get in touch with other purpose, other values that are maybe outside of work, but are still things that are important to me? And I love the fact that you took this opportunity to create your podcast, your podcast Rebirth. So everybody should check it out, subscribe, download, and tell your friends. Oh, thank you. And it's this idea of having meaningful connection. I mean, one of the things that I have been the most blessed with and so happy that Stage 29 Podcast gave me this opportunity is being able to have my own podcast and talk to extraordinary people like yourself. You know, it's very much therapeutic and a learning experience for me to mm-hmm. be able to say, wow, like, look at the amazing things that people are doing. And it doesn't mean that I have to do all of those same things too, but it does mean that there is a way to create extraordinary moments out of seemingly difficult scenarios, adversities, and and seeing that every single day in your life. And I love the fact that you talked about self-reflection too, because you do have to start there. You have to start with gratitude and self-reflection before you know what your next steps are. But it's yes, have the entire roadmap. Right. Yeah. It's okay. It's okay to not have it all figured out. Yeah. This isn't, you know, we shouldn't have the same pressures that a college student at 18, 19, 20 years old have where it's like, what are you going to be for the rest of your life? I know. Pick it right now or die (laughs) and fail. And it's like we need to endorse this element of trial and error. It's okay. The stigma associated with if you try something and if it doesn't succeed, that you're going to be perceived as this individual. Who cares? That's where the lesson is. That's where the school of hard knocks, as they say. That's that's where you actually want to be. You want to be in that moment where you're being tested. And so, you know, it is, I mean, you talked about balance and mm-hmm. For me as a speaker, prior to the pandemic, I was always on the road. I was always gone. I was doing 50 events a year on average. Mm. I was always on a plane. This has forced me now. I'm home for the last few months. And I'm like, I kind of like this. Now, I don't know if my wife likes it all the time. You know, she's like, I kind of like having the house to myself during the day, you know, when the kid was gone and you were on a plane. But I love being home. And so for me now, it's like, okay, I know that this makes me happy. What can I do that when we finally get back to our normal world and people start calling and wanting me to travel to do 50 events a year, I can say, I think I'm only going to do like 20. 
Mm-hmm. And I think I'm going to find something else that allows me the freedom to be home yeah. because I know that makes me happy. And I love being in front of people, but I also understand through my time on television that it's a beautiful thing if you can build out this platform because you can reach more people than you ever could speaking at an event for 50, 100 people, or even if it's 2000 people. And so it is this element of like, you know, challenge yourself, build out your team. This is the opportunity for every single one of us to find out who we have in our corner. What, who's going to help us? Who is going to allow us to expand and to grow and evolve? Who's going to be honest with us? Who's going to challenge us? Who's going to say, Hey, Dr. Judy, you you might want to pay attention to that. You kind of said something, you kind of, you know, did something. Let's pay attention to that. This is the time to do that. Yeah. And you know what? Like you've said, it might not feel good in the moment when you're getting that kind of feedback. I mean, your first reaction is like, whoa. And then yes. sit with it and you say, you know what? They've got a point. And Just I don't listen. Yeah. I don't know why um, it is so difficult for us sometimes. And maybe it's because our egos are so strong as human beings. And, you know, you have pride. And I think that might be another cultural commonality between Latino yes. and Asian cultures. And Sometimes it's okay if we have feelings of guilt and don't shame yourself. Mistakes are just part of the process. And if we see that as a way to grow, as a way to get better, and as a way to serve more people and live out your purpose in an even better way, that's awesome. I mean, I can't tell you how many passion projects I've taken on in the pandemic. And some of them I've really sucked at, (laughs) really blue, but it's also okay. You know, Um, it's kind of fun. I've been going to YouTube university and learning how to use iMovie and I'm very, very bad at it, but I'm I'm happy that I know how to do basic editing now. Oh my God. Right. You start like showing it and then like, you know, and then all of a sudden a three-year-old's like, I know how to do that. You know, you're like, oh, well, forget you. No one's talking to you. You know, that's not about you. It's about what I could do, you know? And it's, but yeah, like it's, you know, this is just, I know it's scary. I'm not gonna, I'm not going to reject how people should feel and what emotions and, and what a lot of people's realities are. Uh, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just challenging people to say, you know what, it's time. There's a lot that's outside of my control, but there's a lot within my control. And this is the opportunity for all of us to do that work. And for me, I I think what also allows me to be so passionate about life too, is I almost lost my life. Mm -hmm. Like I literally almost died. Mm -hmm. I was that close and my life was spared. Mm-hmm. And there was a point in my life where I could say, for whatever reason, now I know the reason. But it, everything happens the way it's supposed to. And we just have to trust ourselves and we just have to give ourselves the right tools. So when those moments happen, like now, mm-hmm. we got it. We don't panic. We got it. But do the work, ladies and gentlemen. Lean in. Don't don't shy away from it. This is our moment to take full control. And I mentioned earlier that my father left when I was nine months old and I met him for the first time in 2019. And when I met him, the conversation that we had, he was just, I was like, where'd you go? <laughs> like, what happened? You run to the grocery store and got lost? And that's what I said to him. And, and he just said, you know, I just forgot about you. Wow. Well, I come to find out that he didn't just forget about me. He forgot about some other kids as well, unfortunately. Mm. But I think I look at that after having that experience with him 
And I'm like, you know what? My childhood was tough because I missed this man and I wanted this father. And I asked myself, why was I not good enough for him to stick around? I now realize at 30, at that last year, at 36 years old, good thing he left. Yeah. Good thing he left because my life could look incredibly different had I been idolizing his behavior because now he's homeless. Now he is broken in every other way. He has no one there to take care of him and look after him. Good thing. Mm -hmm. But of course, if I focus on in that moment, that pain, and I never see the other side and just hang on to get through it, I never get to 36 years old to say, you know, it was a good thing. And now I break the cycle. Yes. And again, you know, this idea of processing and dealing with the things that are holding you back, your own emotional baggage, we all have it, you know, it doesn't Mm -hmm. matter. We all do, you know, Mm -hmm. the more you live life, the more you're going to have emotional baggage and you got to deal with it and move on and discover your strengths. If you know, you want to do something and you don't have the skill set, learn it. Human minds are incredibly adaptive. If you just give it the chance, Mm -hmm. but negative self-talk comes in the way and says, you can't do that. Nobody wants to listen to you. Nobody will ever care and support you. But we find that in other ways. And I think it's a a really wonderful sentiment to end on that. No matter how we were born, no matter what kind of experiences you've been through, at any point in your life, you can decide to say, it ends with me. We can make a new start today. We can reinvent ourselves, be reborn. And not only end the cycle, but but really find meaningful ways to connect with other people who might be feeling down and, and give them the courage to do the same. And I think yeah. Dan was one of those really pivotal people for you. You know, he said he loved you for a long time before you ever said it back to him, but he never pulled back. He never was like, well, I'm not going to say it anymore. Screw that. Mm-hmm. He kept saying it until you were ready to do it also. Mm-hmm. What type of final words of wisdom and pieces of advice do you have for people who are thinking, wow, like JR's story really resonates with me, but I just, I just don't know if I I can do that. I don't have a Dan in my life. Like I don't even know what my purpose is. And this pandemic has made things even worse. Well, I would say you probably do have a Dan in your life. The question you should actually ask yourself is, am I ready to receive Dan? Am I ready to be open to understand that Dan has been here this whole time? And Dan has, as you stated, was patiently waiting for me to meet him in that space. So the question really for the listener right now is, are you in the right mindset to even receive a Dan if, the, if a Dan is right there in that moment? So many of us spend so much of our time looking for the big billboard sign. Yeah. Big revelation as we're driving down the 405 stuck in traffic, right? And the reality is, because in, in when there's traffic in LA, you're staring at that damn sign forever because you're just inching along. But the reality is we ignore the signs that are at eye level on every street when we're in our car that tells us stop, go, slow down, speed up, turn, don't turn. There are all those signs that we ignore. So same thing in life. There's not this big revelation in many cases that we're all seeking that's going to happen. Focus on the small signs. I'll, I'll say this. When I wrote my book, what I started to realize is that the first few chapters of my life, of my book, have already been written. That was me talking to my mother, talking to my family about what it was like. At a certain point, they were no longer part of the middle and the end. It was now my story. Mm -hmm. So 
the symbolization is the way your story begins doesn't have to be the way your story ends. That is on you. You at a certain point learn to pick up a pen, learn how to start typing. Now you can start the body of that story, of your legacy, of what people remember, what people know. You have the opportunity now to take control and, and write it out the way you want it to be. You don't have to inherit and believe that that is your destiny. That's on you. But it all comes down to how bad do you want it? Because it's easier to sit here and say, well, this is just my life. Mm-hmm. It's easy to do that. It's harder to lean in and do the work and to understand things that you have to work on about yourself, things you have to work on with other people, how you have to learn to compromise, how you have to learn how to listen, not hear, but listen. And it's, it's harder to do that, but it's more rewarding when you finally get to that end of that book. Jero, that is such a powerful metaphor. And I think everybody needs to hear this, that basically it's time for you to pick up the pen and write your own story. Yeah. And to find the extraordinary in those ordinary moments. Like you said, it might not be this neon billboard sign, but it could just be the person sitting next to you. Yeah. And that person being the beginning of your healing journey. Wow. We talked about so much today. So I'd like to recap our supercharged tip of reinventing yourself in five easy steps. First, make a reinvention list. Take a few minutes, allow yourself to brainstorm without judgment and imagine what your career and life could be. This is a really great exercise because from here you can develop some concrete plans to move your life forward. Second, discover your strengths. Take a test like Strength Finder, ask your friends or simply do some self-reflection with a journal. And just think about how you learned about these strengths. I mean, sometimes as children, we learn that we're really funny or we're really smart or we're really creative. So go back to that time. What do people compliment you about? Those are some of your biggest strengths. Third, deal with things that are holding you back. Maybe you have some trauma, emotional baggage. The past hurts all of us, but be honest with yourself and take steps to actually deal with them. Fourth, do something out of the ordinary every day. Reroute your mind and channel it towards creativity. Try something you've been putting off. Inject some novelty into your daily routine. This will get your brain thinking in unconventional ways, which may just spark an awesome idea. And five, practice visualization. Visualization is a powerful way to manifest your goals and dreams. So meditate on your vision, write about it, Surround yourself with visual reminders of the life you like to create and really use this skill because studies show that visualization is a type of mental practice and rehearsal for what you want to bring forward in your life. And it also increases your chances of success. I just can't wait to see all of the things that you're going to be doing next. I'm going to be tuning into your podcast. It's called Rebirth. So everybody subscribe and download and listen to that podcast and tell your friends about it. But where else can people find you, JR, if they want to know more about you? Social media as you know, as where we all live these days, social media. So I'm on all three platforms. Well, I guess I should say four, including TikTok now. Oh, uh, so you got on the TikTok bandwagon. <laughs> you know, I, I did it. My daughter was like, daddy, you know, like, you know, she sees some of the stuff and I was like, fine, we'll do it. And all of a sudden the thing just kind of blew up. I don't do it consistently, but yeah. uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter at I am Jr. Martinez, obviously my website, jrmartinez.com. But you know, I just, I just want people to, if you're going to come and, you know, check out, you know, whether it's the podcast, which thank you so very much for plugging, 
Um, I'd love to have you on mine as well, you know, to talk about your journey. But but if you're going to come check out the social media platforms, for me, it's about I want you to be able to come and find somebody that you feel like you can connect with. Somebody that you can at times I'm going to share my vulnerabilities on there and I'm going to share my share my challenges and uh, as well as my successes and my joys. And so I just want to be open and honest in a, in a space where I feel like most of us feel we have to be this mm-hmm. or nothing. And for me, it's like, why can't I be all of the above? And I love that lesson so much because we are such a society that's very, you know, this or the other. There's no sitting with the grays and being cool with the grays. The grays are good, everybody. I got like a few. I got a few grays that popped out, you know, like it's, you know, it's okay. Like, I'm like, oh, I kind of like, oh, you've showed up. All right, you're there. And I just kind of like, you know kind of hang out with them for a little bit then they have then they go away for a little bit then they come back but you know hang out with the grays man you know there's it shows something it proves something be proud of that exactly and i think that we can all take so much of that just saying hey let's sit with that let's sit with it the end like you don't have to make a decision today you don't have to have a course for your life today it's all about these little moments and what we do with them and how Absolutely. a little moment could be an extraordinary moment for every single person who's listening. So thank you again, JR. You, your story, who you are, you're phenomenal. You're a powerful force in this life. And I'm really glad that I got to know you and get to know you briefly today. And I can't wait to see what's next for you and continue to keep in touch. So. Ah, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity, for the platform to share with your listeners and you know just share a little bit about my life i just i thank you so much i think that's a beautiful thing is when you are willing to sit here and say let's bring in other people because i don't have it all figured out and i want to hear what their perspective is so i really appreciate the opportunity absolutely thank you and i've learned so much from you and thank you listeners for listening to this episode of supercharged life you can follow me at dr judy ho on social media and if you like the show go ahead and subscribe download and tell your friends about it I'm Dr. Judy. Now go supercharge your life. Hey, it's Dr. Judy. Since 1971, Pepperdine Graduate School of Education and Psychology has had one mission, to strengthen professionals for lives of purpose, service, and leadership. And it just happens to be where I work. Online psychology at Pepperdine is the latest evolution of our mission, with online master's programs designed for people who want to align their work to their life's true calling. Pepperdine offers three online programs that feature course topics like trauma in diverse populations, multicultural counseling, social psychology, and so much more. The online master's programs are led by renowned faculty in the field who are passionate about their life's work and their students. Students will learn from faculty like myself who see sharing knowledge and mentoring students as more than work, but a noble pursuit and responsibility. Through an intuitive digital campus, students are connected to everything and everyone that they need access to, wherever they are, on any device. At Pepperdine, purpose is not just something that we preach. It's something we embody. We are a community of more than 130,000 professionals making waves and enriching lives. So what are you waiting for? Pursue your purpose at online psychology at Pepperdine. Visit PepperdinePurpose.com slash supercharged life to learn more. That's P-E-P-P-E-R-D-I-N-E purpose.com slash supercharged life to learn more. See you there.